Chapter 5, Part 1 of Bill the Conqueror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bill the Conqueror by P. G. Woodhouse. Night Operations at Holly House. While the stirring events just recorded were in progress in and about the headquarters of the Mammoth Publishing Company at Tilbury House, Bill West had been sitting in markedly gloomy meditation on the little balcony which ran outside the dining-room of his flat in the Prince of Wales Road, Battersea. He had come out here because the silent reproach in the lovely eyes of the twelve photographs of Alice Coker in the sitting-room had proved after a while too much for his sensitive conscience to endure. The disappearance of Judson had left him ill at ease and apprehensive, filling him with a guilty sense of having failed in his duty as a guardian, and the photographs, staring at him like so many accusing angels, deepened this feeling. Why, they seemed to ask, were you so remiss? You were my brother's keeper. Why did you not bean him with a shoe before he could make his getaway? The question was unanswerable. The most rudimentary intelligence should have told him that the course he ought to have pursued was to jump on Judson's neck, even if it involved diving down two flights of stairs, and thus prevent that earnest young inebriate from galloping out into the heart of London with money in his pocket. Now, goodness knew what would happen, or when, and in what shape, the heir of the Cokers would return to the fold. These Prince of Wales Road balconies are pleasant eyries. From their agreeable eminence you can see over the trees into Battersea Park, and revel, if you are in the mood for it, in the delicate green of turf and shooting leaf. You can also see down the road for quite a distance both ways. And so it came about that, just as dusk had begun to fall, and the golden lamps shone out in the street below, Bill was aware of a familiar figure tramping along the pavement towards the entrance of Marmont Mansions. At first he was blankly incredulous. It could not be Judson. Judson must now be miles away, out where the West End begins slaking a two weeks old thirst with cocktails but the figure came into the light of a lamp and it was indeed judson he entered marmont mansions and bill leaving his balcony and hurrying to the front door could hear him wheezily negotiating the stairs the flat was on the fifth floor and there was no lift two facts of which judson had frequently and vehemently complained he arrived now, puffing painfully, and for a space was deaf to Bill's reproaches. "'Eh?' he said, eventually a little restored. "'I said, so here you are,' observed Bill, selecting for repetition one of the milder of his recent remarks. Judson led the way into the sitting-room, where he sank down on the sofa, and, as Bill had done earlier in the afternoon, removed his shoes." nail or something he explained you're a nice chap said bill returning to the attack judson was defiant and unashamed as a matter of fact he replied stoutly i haven't had even one to start with i find that in this infernal country 
The saloons don't open till midnight, or some ghastly hour, so I couldn't get a drink at first, and after that I was too busy. Too busy to get a drink? cried Bill. He followed his friend, bewildered. Judson had risen from the sofa and proceeded to his bedroom, where he now began to put on another and more congenial pair of shoes. "'Too busy to get a drink?' repeated Bill. "'Well, too preoccupied,' said Judson. He poured out a basin of water, washed his travel-stained face and hands, and, moving to the mirror, brushed his hair. "'I've had a very disturbing afternoon, Bill, old man.' "'How much money have you got on you?' "'Never mind about money, old fellow,' said Judson, waving aside the tactless question. "'I want to tell you about my disturbing afternoon.' He lit a cigarette and returned to the sitting-room. "'Can only stop a minute, Bill,' he said. "'Got to go out again in a second. Bill laughed a frosty laugh. "'Any old time you go out.' "'Must,' said Judson. "'Matter that affects my honor. "'Got to see a fellow and have justice done me.' "'You don't want justice done you,' said Bill, "'beginning to doubt his friend's professions of abstinence. "'There was a wild look in Judson's eye, and his manner was peculiar. "'If they started doing justice to you, you'd be in the penitentiary.' "'Judson drew pensively at his cigarette. "'He seemed not to have heard this opprobrious remark.' most disturbing afternoon he continued you ever read a paper called society spice bill old man no what about it only this responded judson there's a piece in it this week saying that it was toddy van reiter who founded the fifth avenue silks toddy van reiter a spine-chilling laugh escaped him you know as well as I do, Bill, old man, that a poor fish like Toddy wouldn't have been able to hit on an idea like that in a million years. I was the little guy that founded those silks, and I'm not going to have all England thinking I wasn't. Toddy van Reiter, sneered Judson. I ask you, Toddy? The cigarette burned his fingers, and he threw it into the grate. I read that while I was on a train in the subway, and I went straight to the place where the rotten rag was published and asked to see the editor. Fellow must have a guilty conscience, because he refused to see me. And when I cornered him on the street a bit later, he just shot into a cab and streaked off. But I was too smart for him, said Judson with a hard chuckle. <laughs> It will be a cold day when any pie-faced scandal-sheet buzzard can make a monkey out of me. I got his home address. I'm going right now to see him and insist on an apology and retraction in the next issue. You aren't going to do anything of the sort. I am, believe me. Bill tried an appeal to his reason. But what does it matter if the man did say Toddy founded the silks? What does it matter? Judson's eyes grew round. He stared at Bill as if questioning his sanity. What does it matter? Do you think I'm going to have the whole of Europe believe in a thing like that? 
not while I have my strength. I suppose if you were Marconi, you'd take it lying down if people went about saying you hadn't invented the wireless. Well, mustn't waste time sitting here. See you later. Six photographs on the mantelpiece gazed at Bill pleadingly. Three on the whatnot, two on the console table, and one on a bracket near the door caught his eye and urged him to be firm. Where does this society spice man live? he asked. Number seven, Litterdale Mansions, Sloan Square, said Judson promptly. He had no need to consult the back of the envelope in his breast pocket, for the address was graven upon his heart. I'm going there now. You aren't going there or anywhere, said Bill firmly, without me. What, what do you think? He choked. What do you think she would say if I let you run about all over London getting into trouble? Judson followed his sweeping hand in the direction of the mantelpiece, but showed little emotion. Too few brothers in this world are capable of being melted by a sister's photograph. But though he appeared unimpressed by the thought of Alice and her possible concern, a certain bias towards prudence did seem to enter his mind. Not a bad idea you're coming too, he admitted. Quite likely, fellow may turn nasty. Then you could sit on his head while I kicked him in the slats. Only way with these birds. Treat him rough. Bill was cold to this outline of policy. There isn't going to be any rough stuff, he said firmly. And you aren't going to butt in and start anything. You will leave the whole business to me. This sort of affair needs a man with a calm, clear mind. I want you to understand right from the beginning that I am handling this. You stay in the background and leave me to do the talking. No violence. Not if he doesn't turn nasty. If he does, said Judson, we will form a wedge and sail in and disembowel the mutt. He won't turn nasty. Why should he? He will probably be only too glad to correct an error in his paper. He'd better be, said Judson grimly. The descent through the roof of Holly House and subsequent explosion on the drawing-room carpet of a large bomb would doubtless have caused a certain excitement and dismay among the inmates of that fair home. But such consternation could hardly have been more marked than that which had followed Flick's announcement that she had broken off her engagement to Roderick Pike. Sir George, arriving in a luxurious limousine a few minutes after the blow had fallen, was in nice time to join the commission appointed by his sister to inquire into and examine the tragedy. "'She gives no reason,' wailed Mrs. Hammond for the tenth time. For once in her masterly life, this great woman was completely unnerved. Any ordinary disaster she might have coped with, but this was too shattering. The ghastly suddenness of it was perhaps its most appalling feature. No warning, no shadow of a warning had preceded the blow. Shortly after two o'clock, Flick had left the house, thoroughly and completely engaged to Roderick and at half-past seven she had come back with a hard gleam in her blue eyes, freed from all sentimental entanglements. And that was all that Mrs. Hammond or anybody knew. For Flick, 
as she was now remarking for the eleventh time, gave no reason. In addition to being terrible, the thing was achingly mysterious, and quite half of Mrs. Hammond's exasperation and fury was due to the fact that she was being excluded from sharing in a secret. She raged impotently, and when Sir George was ushered in by Wace, the butler, demurely grave, as only a butler can be when something is up above stairs, she had just snubbed the unfortunate Sinclair rather ferociously for the second time in three minutes. Upon receipt of this second rebuff, Sinclair Hammond had withdrawn from the discussion. As a rule, so long as people did not interrupt him when he was writing, or a tribute to Bassius Secundus, sentiments which had actually been uttered by Aristides of Smyrna, it was not easy to ruffle Sinclair Hammond. But irritability was in the air to-night, and having twice been requested, for goodness' sake, not to talk such nonsense, he retired, wounded, into a corner, and buried himself in a first edition of Robert Burns' poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect, printed by John Wilson, Kilmarnock, 1786, uncut in the original blue wrappers. How deeply he had been hurt is shown by the fact that even this did not altogether soothe him. Sir George, taking his place in the debate, was at first as helplessly concerned as any one. It was he who pointed out the dramatic feature of the affair, to wit, that poor Roderick, who could not possibly have received Flick's letter yet, might be expected to arrive at any moment in complete ignorance of what had happened. How, Sir George demanded, was the news to be broken to him? The question started a train of thought. How also, Mrs. Hammond inquired feverishly, was the scandal to be kept from the half-dozen or so of Wimbledon's elect, who had been invited to dine to-night expressly to meet the about-to-be-happy couple? The Wilkinsons from Heath Prospect were coming. The Bing Gervoises from the Towers were coming. Pondicherry Lodge was contributing Colonel and Mrs. Bagshot. What possible explanation could be made to these leaders of society of Felicia's absence? Felicia's absence? Sir George started. What do you mean, Felicia's absence? She refuses to come down to dinner. Tell them she's got a headache, said Mr. Hammond, glancing up from his burns. Oh, do be quiet, Sinclair, begged his suffering wife. Mr. Hammond returned to his reading. Sir George, whose face and bearing had taken on that stiff solemnity which always reminded his employees at Tilbury House so strongly of a stuffed frog, puffed vigorously. Refuses to come down to dinner? I never heard of anything so ridiculous. I will speak to her. Send for her at once. It's no good sending for her moaned Mrs. Hammond. She has locked herself in her bedroom and won't come out. Which is her room? The second door to the left on the first landing. What are you going to do, George? Sir George turned on the threshold. I am going to speak to her, he said. There was an interval of some three or four minutes. In the drawing-room a tense silence prevailed. Mrs. Hammond sat rigid on her chair. Bob, the celium, slumbered on the rug. 
mr hammond put down his burns and rising walked to the french windows and threw them open he stood looking out into the gentle night the garden slept under the stars and a breeze floated across the lawn peace peace everywhere save in this stricken home a distant rumble from above proclaimed that sir george was still speaking to her presently the rumble ceased footsteps descended the stairs sir george entered his face was red and he was breathing a little heavily the girl's mad he announced briefly there is nothing to be done for the present but make some excuse to these people who are coming here to-night better tell them she's got a headache an excellent idea said mrs hammond with enthusiasm we will colonel and mrs bagshot proclaimed wace the butler in the doorway his slightly prominent eyes swept the little group before him with respectful commiseration do the best you can his glance seemed to say it's beyond me a taxicab drew up at the door of litterdale mansions sloane square bill west alighted and spoke through the window you wait here said bill i'll go up and see this man judson appeared doubtful well i don't know he said seems to me this is a business that wants handling are you sure you're equal to it if only you keep out of it i can settle the whole affair in two minutes said bill firmly he felt unusually calm and capable as he entered the building as a rule it is a nervous task to call upon a perfect stranger and ask favors of him but bill felt no diffidence he looked forward to an amusing chat it was only when he had gone up a couple of floors in the lift and was interrogated by the attendant as to where he wished to stop that he remembered that he had omitted to ask judson the name of the man he had come to interview a little ruffled by the captious manner of the attendant on being requested to take him down again after a brief indulgence in what the latter evidently looked upon as a joy-ride he went out to the cab well said judson eagerly popping out like a cuckoo out of a clock what did he say i haven't seen him yet bill explained i forgot to ask you what his name is look here said judson in an anxious voice his faith in his ambassador now plainly at zero are you sure you're equal to this hadn't i better push up you stay here said bill he had lost that easy calm i have a feeling that you'll bungle it don't be a chump what's his name pike but pike all right that's all i wanted to know he re-entered the lift and was shot up to the third floor only to receive another check if bill had been a superstitious man he would have realized at this point that the omens were bad and that it would be a wise course to abandon the expedition a manservant answering this ring informed him that mr pike had gone out just gone this moment sir but i've only just come up argued bill why didn't i meet him perhaps mr pike walked downstairs sir it seemed a tenable theory at any rate the man was gone bill unwilling to trouble the lift attendant again walked downstairs himself and reaching the cab found judson in a state bordering on the febrile judson was dancing on the pavement i knew you would bungle it he cried the fellow sneaked out half a second ago tried to get into my cab 
tried to get into your cab yes didn't know there was anybody in it he peered in saw me turned deadly pale and judson broke off pointing look quick there he is getting into that taxi over there get in jump in you poor fish the affair which had started out in so orderly and well-planned a manner was now beginning to take on a hectic aspect which flustered bill the jerk with which judson dragged him into the taxi helped further to disorder his faculties and when his companion leaning across him and speaking out of the window uttered those words familiar to every reader of detective stories follow that cab wherever it goes the enterprise stepped definitely into the ranks of waking nightmares to call upon a stranger and ask him civilly to insert in his paper a correction of an inadvertent error is one thing to hound him about london in cabs quite another bill had a well-regulated man's dislike of scenes and it seemed to him that this pursuit could only end in a scene of the most disagreeable nature already judson had begun to babble harsh comments on the man whose taxi keenly pursued by their own was moving rapidly down the street towards sloane square it was judson's firm belief that the fellow was in the pay of toddy von reiter if not why should he jump ten feet sideways every time they met taken by and large the whole thing looked like a pretty black business to judson he seethed with generous indignation and even went so far as to state his intention should they ever catch up with him of busting the fellow one on the snoot as the moments went by it almost seemed as though these sentiments must have communicated themselves by some sort of telepathy to the man in the other cab for his taxi went on and on and on the theory that he was going out to dine somewhere now seemed thin would any diner out dine so far out as this already they were well into the fulham road and he showed no signs of stopping they rattled over putney bridge they climbed putney hill and still the taxi in front moved forward it began to appear absurd even to bill reluctant as he was to abandon the common-sense view that this pike could simply be on his way to dinner it seemed more probable that his intention was to go on till he reached the coast and then jump off the edge in attributing these qualms to roderick his pursuers had erred true roderick had had what amounted to the start of a lifetime when that glance into judson's taxi had informed him that the mysterious stranger was still on his trail but panic had passed as soon as he had got into a cab of his own and driven off it had not occurred to him that he was being chased arriving at holly house he paid his driver and rang the doorbell without even a look behind it was only as he waited on the step for waste to answer the bell that the crackling of gravel in his rear caused him to turn his head the shock he received on observing a second cab tearing down the drive was severe a faint hope that this might be a peaceful cab containing blameless dinner guests of his aunt frances vanished as he perceived judson's inflamed face protruding from the right-hand window he lunged desperately at the bell again and waited for wace 
as the duke of wellington in another crisis had waited for blucher the cab stopped from one door judson shot out from the other bill roderick rang the bell again staring glassily over his shoulder oddly enough it was the sight of bill that set the seal on his horror and yet had he but known bill was here in the purest spirit of pacifism what had caused bill to project himself so vigorously out of the cab was the kindly desire to be on the scene of action in time to keep judson from committing the mayhem of which he had spoken so feelingly at practically every stage of the journey bill was the wise cool clear-headed man who was there to stop any violence but to roderick he seemed the most dreadful thing that had come along in the whole course of this dreadful day judson so held roderick was bad enough he was pretty scared of judson but about judson there was this consoling feature that he had a certain weediness a lack of thews and sinews with judson a fellow if driven into a corner might possibly cope but bill was quite another matter a man cannot fulfil the exacting duties of left tackle on a harvard football team without having a fairly impressive physique no mere amiability or charm of manner will fit him for the post he must be equipped with india rubber legs a chest like an ice-box and the shoulders of a prize-fighter these qualifications bill possessed he stood five feet eleven in his socks and weighed on the hoof one hundred and ninety-three pounds and roderick watching him bound up the drive unhesitatingly cast him for the role of star in this murder scene the consequence was that when bill reached the steps just as wace opened the door roderick trapped and desperate saw nothing for it but to sell his life dearly whirling his stick madly in the air he brought it down with a solid whack on bill's head bill totally unprepared for anything of this kind tripped and fell judson hurrying up stumbled over bill and roderick snatching at the chance thus presented of effecting a masterly retreat dashed into the house and slammed the door after him of all the things calculated to modify a wise cool clear-headed outlook on life few are more effective than a brisk buffet on the skull from a heavy stick in this case the blow was rendered all the more powerful by the striker's terror and bill's hat having fallen off in his sprint down the straight there was nothing to break the force of it he remained for an appreciable space of time sitting dazedly on the gravel and when eventually he rose his mood had undergone a complete and remarkable change no trace remained of his recent desire to keep this business free from violence violence was what he wanted more than anything on earth he looked on the world through a crimson mist in this new frame of mind the spectacle of judson hopping about in a futile manner exasperated him intensely he was in the mood when men usually tolerant of their fellow-creatures conceive a sudden dislike for whoever happens to be nearest he glowered at judson go and sit in the cab he commanded with set teeth 
But look here, Bill, man. Go on. I'm going to attend to this business. What are you going to do? Bill's finger was on the bell, and he kept it there without pause. A few short hours before, life had been a thing opening out before him in a prismatic vista of manifold ambitions. He had had all sorts of plans. Plans for making a fortune. Plans for marrying Alice Coker. Plans for scoring off Wilfred Slingsby. Now all these rainbow visions had passed from his mind, and he had but one object in the world, just one, and that was to get into this house, find the fellow who had sloshed him on the bean, and methodically kick the man's spine up through his back hair. He was in the mood which used to send ancient Vikings berserk, which makes modern melees run amok and prod the citizenry with long knives. Like most big men, Bill West was good-natured. He did not readily take offense, but hit him an absolutely unprovoked wallop on the head with a stick, and you started something. He continued to ring the bell. I'm going to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with that fellow, he said grimly. Judson's feelings were now those of a child who, sportling idly with a pocket-knife beside a reservoir, finds suddenly that he has bored a hole in the dam. He had unchained passions which overawed him. Frothily, though he had talked of inflicting violence on the erring Roderick, Judson had never really intended business. He knew now that he would not have proceeded beyond words. But in Bill's program, words had only too plainly no part at all. To see Bill that mild and good-humoured young man standing there with his teeth bare his eyes glittering and a thin trickle of blood running down his forehead appalled judson he felt weakly unequal to the situation with a pale face and limp knees he returned to the cab and as he did so the door opened wace the butler had been annoyed by the strident persistence of the bell it was with the intention of administering a severe rebuke that he now presented himself. But the words he had framed were never uttered. Something large and solid brushed Wace out of the way, and staggering back he saw a big man without a hat careering along the hall in the direction of the drawing-room. "'Hi,' he said feebly. The intruder paid no attention. He had stopped for an instant, as if uncertain of his destination, but now a burst of voices from behind the door put him on the scent. His fingers closed on the handle. "'Hi!' said Wace again. "'Stop!' Bill did not stop. He plunged on into the drawing-room. The drawing-room was full of men and women, dressed and eager for the feast. Here Mr. Wilkinson of Heath Prospect chatted about the weather to Mrs. Hammond. There Mrs. Bing Gervoise of the Towers spoke to her host of new plays. Colonel Bagshot was drinking sherry and entertaining Mrs. Wilkinson with an account of his most recent passage of arms with the local council. Sir George and Mr. Bing Gervoise were talking politics. Roderick, a solitary figure attached to no group, stood by the open window. Into this refined gathering, bill charged like a ravening wolf and roderick turning with the others at the sound of the opening door and catching sight of his ghastly face 
acted promptly. This was the fourth time today that he had felt the imperative need of flight from forces beyond his control, and nimble though he had shown himself on each of the previous occasions, his movements then had been leaden-footed compared with the turn of speed which he exhibited now. He shot out into the garden like a cannonball, with Bill in close attendance. End of chapter 5, part 1